This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Listeners, welcome to Sailing the East podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we'll focus on passages and destinations. In other episodes, we will talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting individual, we'll try to get them as a guest on the show. Now, what makes this podcast unique, Bela, is that only one of us sails. And that would be me. I've been sailing for over 30 years, not across oceans, but on lakes and coastal cruising on the East Coast of the United States. And I, Mike, know very little about sailing, and I actually live kind of in the middle of Germany, a few hours from the North Sea. Uh, But it looks like, you know, you said earlier that sailing the East Coast of the United States, Bela, and it looks like today we're going to head north from our last episode and go out of the United States and travel to Shelburne, Nova Scotia. And I'm excited about this. I love Canada. Tell me about the trip. Yeah, so you're <laughs> you're right. Uh, this was my uh, first and only trip uh, outside of the United States, I guess, now that I think about it. Uh, so this was interesting. So I did this trip as a crew member on a friend's sailboat. Uh, my friend and his wife uh, sailed from their home port of Baltimore, uh, Maryland, Uh, to Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, with some friends. And they kind of sailed up the East Coast, uh, bopping and stopping along the way, uh, going all the way up to Maine, uh, and about halfway up the coast of Maine. And then they zipped over to Nova Scotia, uh, spent some time sailing around there. And then their friends, uh, who were crewing for them, had to leave. And so um, the, the captain of the boat, the owner of the boat and his wife, needed someone to help them bring the boat back. And uh, so I was able to do that. Uh, So uh, we sailed the boat from uh, Halifax uh, back to Baltimore, and it was about a 10-day trip. Now, Bela, I've never, I've traveled quite a bit in Canada, but I've never been to Halifax. So I looked on the map, and it's kind of way up there and way out there. Um, It's a long way away from where you are. How'd you get to Halifax? Well, uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, I live in upstate New York, uh, near the capital, Albany, New York, and uh, there's a small, relatively small airport by airport standards uh, in Albany, New York. And much to my surprise, they have one nonstop flight per day uh, from Albany, New York to Halifax. And uh, it's not a big airplane, uh, but it is an airplane. And uh, so it was about a two and a half hour flight. And, and you're right, it's a lot further away than I, I thought it was. And it's a lot of water between Albany, New York. Once you get, you kind of fly from Albany to Boston and then sort of head up and we flew over a lot of water. Uh, so the trip was pretty easy, except for the fact that they lost my checked bag. Now, I'm not sure that happened because it was a direct flight, right? From a, a small to medium sized airport to a, a very small airport in Halifax. Uh, and 
what that means when there's only one flight a day is that if your bag gets lost, i.e., it turns out it ended up in Albany, it never got on the airplane, it means it's not getting there until the next day. It's not like they can put it on, you know, the flight that leaves two hours later. So uh, that was sort of interesting. Now, Bela, I mean, even though this was your first sailing trip outside the U.S., I know that you are a seasoned traveler. You've been a traveler. You've been all over the world. You used to fly all the time in the U.S. for, for work. Um, don't you usually just do carry-ons rather than checking a bag? Ah, excellent point, Mike. Yeah, uh, And you're right. I have traveled a lot. I, I have well over a million miles on American Airlines alone. And uh, my family and I have had several very nice vacations cashing in my frequent flyer miles on various different airlines. And, and part of that, <clears throat> excuse me, part of that's because of the job I had and what I did in my previous lives. I did travel a lot, both uh, in the United States and internationally. So I would never check a bag, right? I would try to figure out how to, how to carry it on with me. I'd pack as light as possible, et cetera, and take it on board because I learned my lesson in, in previous trips. The problem is the plane from Albany to Halifax is not very big. So all those, as the planes get smaller, uh, the carry-on space gets less and less and less. And, and basically, you can bring one item with you, uh, like a small backpack. And, and that's what I brought with me, uh, just a small backpack. And this is a challenging trip because when we left Nova Scotia, uh, which was in early September, it was pretty chilly up there. And we planned to be sailing at night. And it gets even chillier because that water is really cold. You, you get the Labrador current up there. And so the water temperature is cold. And that, of course, when you're out on the water, it drops the air temperature. So I had to bring warm clothes. Uh, and at the same time, we were going to end up in Baltimore, uh, which can be pretty warm in the uh, mid-September. So I had to bring a lot of clothes with me. And plus sailing gear, like, you know, foul weather jacket and pants. And those types of things are very bulky. <clears throat> and I also prefer to bring my own safety gear. Like I have an inflatable life jacket that automatically inflates if I fall overboard. Uh, I have a tether, uh, which is a fancy name for a, a rope. <laughs> uh, it's not a rope, but a, a, a tether that I can clip into the boat so I can't fall overboard. Because falling overboard is not something you want to do in the ocean, uh, particularly if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And you're the only one that's awake and you fall overboard. Uh, they're not going to know you're missing until they wake up uh, three hours later. So uh, I bring all that stuff and some of that's bulky as well. So uh, I did have to check a bag, unfortunately. So, Bela, I think I know the answer to this, but just to make sure, did they get the bag to you? Uh, yeah, yes, they did. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, there's another complication. So I arrived in Halifax about midday, uh, and I got to the boat probably two in the afternoon after I kind of got the bag situation figured out, i.e. that I wasn't getting it. Um, and uh, when I got to the boat, uh, it turns out that because of a weather window, uh, we wanted to leave Halifax and sail to Shelburne. We wanted to leave by like five o'clock uh, that day. 5 p.m., and we'd get to Shelburne uh, mid to late afternoon the next day. And part of that was because there was a weather window that was open. So the and, and we've talked in the past, sort of weather dictates when and how you sail and sort of how comfortable you are when you sail. And I like to be comfortable when I'm sailing. 
So we had wind in a good direction. We had relatively calm seas. So we wanted to leave uh, that afternoon, which means the airport, the, you know, my bag was going to land in, in, uh, Nova, in uh, Halifax, but I wouldn't be there the following day when the bag arrives. But we also knew that we would be, go to Shelburne and we would spend a few days in Shelburne because then the weather kind of turned crummy for a few days. So um, luckily, the owner of the boat had kind of extra foul weather gear for me and a harness and a tether. And my friend who owned the boat was about the same size as me. So that all part all worked out. And um, I told the airline that, hey, I'm not in Halifax. I'm going to be in Shelburne. And they brought the bag out to the marina where we stayed in Shelburne. So it all worked out. But it was a kind of a bit nervous uh, not having my stuff with me. Uh, so it was, uh, it was, it was kind of cool. So, all right. So you, you were, you were going to leave, um, from Halifax, but weather drove your decision to go to Shelburne. Yeah. So you might ask the question, why not just leave from Halifax, right? We were going to, our first stop was going to be in the Boston area. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so that's about a three day trip. And so, it's about a day from Shel from Halifax to Shelburne, and then about two days, two and a half days from Shelburne to sort of Boston. And so you say, well, why not just leave from Halifax? Why do you want to go to Shelburne? Well, we had one, we had a 24-hour period of favorable weather. Then we had two to three days of unfavorable weather. And then it looked like we'd have two or three days of favorable weather again. So sort of one of my principles in sailing, if you're trying to get to someplace is if you have a weather window that's good, start going in that direction if you can. <laughs> Particularly if you can stop, right? And in this case, we could we could sail for a little less than 24 hours and make a stop, have a nice harbor to sit in, wait out the bad weather, and then leave for the Boston area. Because then we cut a, basically a day off the trip from Nova Scotia to Boston, which means the good weather window we need is a little narrower. Right. So everything here is sort of driven by weather and, and the longer your trip is and the further out you have. I mean, you can get good weather forecasts for about three days. Once it starts getting past three days, uh, the predictability starts decaying pretty quickly. So I don't like to sail in bad weather, honestly. And, and so I like to do trips that are, you know, less than three days in length if possible uh, because of I mean, when you're out in the ocean. Right. So that's why we wanted to move, move in the homeward direction. We had 24-hour window. Take advantage of it. Spend a couple days in, in Shelburne and then leave from there for Boston because we reduced that length, of, that leg of the trip by a day. You cut a day off of it. So that's sort of the rationale for that. Cool. So it's kind of yeah. knowing the weather, knowing your maps and how far you are, and just essentially trip planning and trip management to minimize your risk. Right. Yeah? Right. That's to me, that's a big, big element of sailing is sort of passage planning, managing the trip, knowing the weather windows, and ke fundamentally keeping yourself out of trouble. Yeah. Right. You break, a, you break a mast on a trip like this, and you're in deep trouble, right? You're a long way from home, right? And, and so let me make one other statement. <laughs> so uh, the Coast Guard, you can say, well, I'll just call the Coast Guard. Well, uh, the Coast Guard... Coast Guard's range on a helicopter is about 150 miles. So, because they have to come out to get you, they got to hover around for a while and they got to fly back. So it's approximately 150 miles. 
So if you're further than 150 miles from shore, helicopter's not coming to get you. <laughs> so it's going to be a while while they divert a freighter or something else to come try to get you. So the point being is I want to stay out of bad weather because it doesn't take just it doesn't take something serious like a mast, right? It could be it could be something else. You could get sick, you mm-hmm. get appendicitis, right? Or you could cut yourself really bad and and you need to get off the boat. So I like to do it in a couple day chunks. Usually means you're pretty close to shore. Usually means you're within, you know, four hours of rescue if need be. Uh, and there's a lot of things that can sort of break on a boat, like the autopilot goes, right? So most boats that are out in the ocean have autopilots of some form. Some are electromechanical devices. Some are driven by the wind, but they can break. And if you have to steer the boat by hand, that is really tiring. I mean, it might, you know, sitting in your car for three hours and driving is a lot easier than being in a boat in the middle of a storm and trying to steer the boat. So you really want to minimize your exposure to to bad weather. And that's what sort of passage planning and all this stuff is all about. Really important from my perspective. Cool. Interesting. All right. Let's think about Shelburne here for a minute. Um, Tell me about Shelburne. This is in Nova Scotia, right? Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Tell me about it. Yeah. So Shelburne is... uh, it's it was a a 20 some hour sail uh south of uh southwest i guess i would say from halifax uh we stayed at the shelburne harbor yacht club and marina uh which was a very nice place uh we had a mooring ball there small very friendly it's a low key place they had did have some dock space and several mooring mooring ball mooring ball mooring balls let me see. Try that one more time. Mooring balls, uh, and uh, it was really good. Uh, I think it uh, drive. It's about 120, 130 nautical miles or something like that. So you know, a one day, a one day sail. Uh, very convenient place. Uh, close to uh, a grocery store, and a close walk to sort of everything you want to need, everything you might need uh, to get stocked up, etc. Uh, so it was a, a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, Shelburne is a, a quaint, small town. And when I say small and quaint, uh, I don't think there was a traffic light in town. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And what do you, when I say small, I mean, you came from, you lived in Potsdam for a period of time, which is a relatively small town. So what, what do you think the population of Shelburne is? Well, I think Potsdam had like 10,000 people, Potsdam, New York. And I think there was like, 11 traffic lights so it has to be teeny tiny like less than five thousand. Yeah? yeah i don't know what, under, what is it yeah it's under two thousand. wow that's small under two thousand, and and the history is interesting which i'll, I'll, I'll get into a, a little bit here uh, but it had a very nice grocery store had a great seafood restaurant that that we found and as you would expect because uh fishing uh and the sea plays a big role in their economy uh, I remember when we were sailing up the up the bay to get to Shelburne, which is that sort of the head of the bay. Uh, we went through past uh, several salmon farms where they were uh, raising salmon in these big pens that were you know floating in the bay. Um, and we found this great seafood restaurant where we had lunch one day, and then we purchased uh, three lobsters to go, uh, and they cooked them for us. And we took them back to the boat and that dinner and that evening we had lobster for dinner. Uh, cool. Lobster is one of my, my favorite foods. Uh, and uh, 
Shipbuilding is also a pretty big industry, but I'd say probably the biggest industry there in Shelburne is tourism. Uh, so it's kind of seafood, shipbuilding, and tourism are the, are the three big things. It has an interesting history, Mike, and I, I never even knew this existed. So either I forgot this when I was in school or they never taught it to me. But in 1783, more than 5,000 settlers arrived to Shelburne from New York and the middle colonies of what is now the United States. And these, these settlers were loyalist to the United Kingdom. And they were leaving the post-revolution territories of the 13 colonies, right? So, because remember, Canada and that was, was under, under uh, British control, and these folks were loyalist, and, and they, they went to Shelburne, leaving what was to become the United States uh, to, to, to go to, to the U, a UK territory. And, and later in that year, even more loyalists uh, arrived. So eventually the population got to like 17,000 people. It's only 2,000 now, right? So at one time it was 17, in the 1783, 1784, 17,000 people were there. It was the fourth largest city in North America. Wow. So there's the, the point being is there's a lot of history there. And you can see much of this rich history in the buildings and the architecture of Shelburne. Uh, it was really, really cool. I mean, 17,000, the fourth largest city in North America, right? So it was really kind of cool. And because of these old buildings that are there, there's been a fair number of movies and TV shows that have actually been filmed, or at least parts of them have been filmed in Shelburne because of the scenery. So I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. It sounds really cool, Bela. Now, I have two questions that popped into my mind while you were describing Shelburne. One is you talked earlier about cold weather gear. How cold did it get on this trip? Did you need that cold weather gear? Yeah. So the days were beautiful. Uh, but the trip from, from, I'll say the trip from Nova Scotia to Shelburne was cold. And then the trip from Shelburne to Boston was even colder out on the ocean at night particularly at night. So you, During the days, the sun comes out. You know, the sun is a wonderful thing. It, it really warms you up. Uh, but at night, with those cold Labrador currents there, it was in the 40s. And, you know, it's it's not like I'm jogging. You're sitting in the cockpit. <laughs> You're not doing a lot of stuff. So I, I was wearing, being that I'm a skier, and I'm from upstate New York where it gets cold in the winter, I have an abundance of warm clothes available to me. And I think I was wearing those first few nights, I was wearing all of the warm clothes that I bought with me uh, uh, on each night. So it was chilly. So your decision to check the bag was wise. I mean, even though you had no choice, essentially, because the airplane. Right. But yeah, it was good. So always prepare for the coldest possible weather. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like when, it, when if you're sailing in Florida in, in the summertime, you know, you, you don't need a lot of clothes. But this is one of those trips where the, we were going to see a drastic change in the t kind of temperatures because we're heading basically due south. So that makes it a, a bit challenging. Cool. Now, this, the second question I had was back to Shelburne. What are the, I mean, it sounds like it's a small town, but you said tourists uh, is a big part of the, the scene there. Are there any interesting activities that you're there once you get off the boat? Yeah, uh, amazing uh, amount of activities for such a small town, right? Less than 2,000 people. Uh, they had several kind of historical buildings that they, they sort of restored. And all of them were sort of open 
and uh, they had various different artifacts on display uh, in the building. Some of these buildings had sort of like different themes. I'd, I'd call them sort of like museum-like, but they, they weren't real museums, but, but uh, they were museum-like. Uh, and they talked about, you know, the ships that they built there, the shipbuilding industry, <clears throat> the, the fishing industry, and they had various different artifacts from that era. So I found that to be really, really interesting. I, I like doing those, uh, exploring those types of places. There's a great park there. So it's called the Islands Provincial Park. Uh, and it's, you know, has some trails that sort of follow the coastline. The coastline is interesting here. It's sort of rocky, uh, but the trees grow right up to the coastline. So it's, it's this, you know, at least right up to high tide. And so it's this sort of uh, hard to tell you're at the ocean. In many ways, it looks like lakes in the Adirondacks. Uh, there's not a lot of tide swing up there. Uh, and so this Islands Provincial Park is, is really nice. We explored that. Uh, we went for a nice long walk there one day, uh, roamed around there. And it had picnic tables and just a, you know, a nice, really beautiful park. Um, in town, there was this small outdoor performing art stage uh, right in town. And uh, again, a, a town of 2,000 people, it, it's amazing. And one night, uh, we went there to listen to uh, this individual perform these traditional songs about Nova Scotia, sort of like Nova Scotia folk songs. Uh, and that was really interesting. It was free, right? It was just there's something that they had this weekly concert series, and we happened to be there on a night that was, that was there. And, you know, all of this stuff was in walking distance, the park, the, the, the museums, um, the performing arts stage, the grocery store, the seafood place, all within walking distance of, of where we stayed. So it was really, really very impressive. And I got to say, uh, I was sort of disappointed. I didn't get to spend more than like four hours in Halifax. Uh, and, and more than half of that was seemed to be at the airport. Um, so Nova Scotia is certainly um, on my list of places to go and visit again. I, I highly recommend it. It's just gorgeous place. Uh, and, you know, you go there in July or August. <laughs> and September, the daytime weather was, was gorgeous when we were there. Um, so it's really on my, on my bucket list of places to go and explore again. Nice. It's on my list, too, once we're allowed to fly over to your side of the Atlantic again, but that's awesome. Now I have one last question, Bela, and maybe it's a dumb question. Sometimes I ask those, but um, this is kind of our first foray on this podcast into international waters. How do you deal with border control and customs when you arrive into a U.S. port from Canadian waters? Ah, that's a good question, Mike. So there's only certain places that you can come into, uh, and there is this application, wouldn't you know it, there's an app uh, on your phone, and uh, I'm going to try to find it here. What's the name of it uh, while we sort of uh, talk in here? So there's an app that you can get on your phone where you, uh, first of all, you have to have your passport, right? So I had to have my passport to get into Nova Scotia. Uh, and then when you leave Nova Scotia, you check out as you would at any other place. And uh, you do, we did that over the phone. And then coming into U.S., uh, our first port of call was actually uh, in Marion, Massachusetts, which is a port of entry. So there's only certain places you can go. Um, so there's this app on the we had on our phone. And uh, you basically with that app, you uh, have you can take a picture of your passport and you can send it off to 
customs and uh, they will uh, either say it's okay for you to come into the country and clear you in or they'll say no uh, you you have to go to a particular port of entry where there's a customs office and then they'll have to check you in so everybody on the boat was uh, US citizens and uh, so we used this app we took pictures of our passports uh, we uh, uploaded that information uh, name of the boat where we're from all that kind of stuff and uh, number of people on the boat we sent that off and like within a half hour we got the okay from u.s border patrol and customs that we could go any place we didn't have to check into boston where we were prepared to stop there if we had to because that that is a place where they have a customs office um and we ended up going to to marion mass so yeah that worked pretty seamless i was impressed because under normal conditions uh i was prepared because i didn't know about this app the my, my friend knew all about it uh that we would have to go to uh, a place like Boston uh, and actually physically go to a customs and border patrol uh, office. So it worked out well. Cool. Good use of technology and a good process. Sounds like it's not, it wasn't too painful. Uh, so yeah. that's neat. Bela, this is a great snapshot of your trip. Thanks for putting this together. Um, so kind of just to summarize your words of advice for heading to Nova Scotia, one, bring cold weather gear, right? To yeah. learn a little bit about the history and the culture before you go, because it did sound really fascinating. I had no idea what the loyalists and all that stuff, and it's just the value of doing a little bit of homework before you head somewhere makes it that much more meaningful. And then third, when you're traveling internationally, don't forget that passport and other important travel documents, and look and see what kind of cool technologies you might be able to use to make those border crossings more painless. So listeners, yeah. thanks for joining us. Hope you found this episode interesting and thought-provoking. If you have questions about what we discussed, as always, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And hey, if you like the podcast, uh, tell a friend and get them to uh, listen and subscribe as well. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. I look forward to seeing you next time.